Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today is Monday, April 12th. Uber rides are up to record levels. The chances of Chicago high schools reopening are down. And we're focused on what America will do with its extra vaccine doses. Most American adults haven't yet received a COVID-19 vaccination, yours truly included. But expectations are that we won't have to wait too much longer, particularly since every adult in the country will be considered eligible beginning next Monday. And with vaccine production continuing to quickly ramp up, the U.S. soon may have something that was unthinkable at this time last year. A surplus. More doses of vaccine than we actually require, even if booster shots get recommended next year. In theory, that should be great news not only for us, but for the rest of the world, particularly developing nations that are desperate to vaccinate their populations. Again, in theory. The reality, though, as was just uncovered by Vanity Fair contributing editor Catherine Eban, is that the Operation Warp Speed contracts signed by the Trump administration explicitly prevent the U.S. government from shipping surplus vaccine overseas. It's something the Biden team learned upon arriving at the White House and was ready to quickly reverse, but so far has let the status quo survive. In the meantime, lots of people in lots of other countries are viewing vaccinations like we did in 2020. Likely, but not anytime soon. So today we wanted to speak with Catherine Eban about those contracts, why Biden hasn't renegotiated them, and what happens next. We're joined now by Catherine Eban, a Vanity Fair contributing editor who just wrote a piece titled We Are Hoarding, Why the U.S. Still Can't Donate COVID-19 Vaccines to Countries in Need. So, Catherine, you get these Operation Warp Speed contracts, and your biggest takeaway is what? The biggest single takeaway is that the contracts very explicitly Uh, restrict the vaccines to the U.S. or U.S. territories. What that means is that when we do have a surplus, which is possibly around the corner, we're not going to be able to share them uh, unless those contracts are renegotiated. So it has a chilling effect on President Biden's ability to do what he has said he wants to do, which is to be a global public health leader Uh, and really, you know, turn his attention to the rest of the world. You write in your piece that liability concerns seem to be what in part drove that language. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So um, the U.S. has something that's called the PREP Act, which was passed in 2005. Uh, And the PREP Act is really a, as somebody described it to me, a sort of Star Trek style shield that protects vaccine makers. But the problem is, as soon as the vaccine doses walk across the border, then the PREP Act is no longer in effect. And these companies want sort of blanket liability protection. The logic behind that is they're developing these products in the middle of an emergency. They haven't been tested for as long as some products might be tested. And so they want to be covered by the PREP Act. But the result of that is to say, you're going to 100% restrict the use of those doses to wherever the PREP Act is in effect. Now, I will say what really surprised me in my reporting is when I turned to the Defense Department to ask them for a response 
to why this language was in the contracts, because the, it's the Defense Department under um, Operation Warp Speed that negotiated the contracts, I got a really surprising response back from the Defense Department. They said, oh, well, yeah, we tried to get global sharing language into the contracts and the vaccine makers refused. So we were like, oh, okay, we can't. Now, why is this so surprising? Well, talk about leverage. I mean, we gave these companies billions of dollars. So if you ever had leverage over a contract, it would be when you're, you know, shoveling money out the door. And in, in some of these cases, as, as we previously reported in others, the U.S. government actually owns part of some of these vaccines, at least the IP on them. C- Catherine, I'm wondering... E- If the U.S. government has a surplus of, say, the Pfizer vaccine and decides to just send it somewhere else and break this contract, what would actually happen? Well, I mean, it's a terrible precedent. The U.S. government is not good for its word. It would be in breach of contract. Now, if somebody said to me, this isn't just like, uh, you know, canceling a contract for an airplane. This is a big, big deal. That means that Companies that are going to do business with the U.S. government can't trust it. You talk about in the story how there was some movement at the, in the final days of the Trump administration to basically amend these contracts, for lack of a better term, so that that extra surplus vaccine could get distributed. Then January 6th happens. Uh, Matthew Pottinger, who was kind of leading this, resigns that afternoon. So the whole thing goes away. What's the status now of basically a revised agreement? So the document in question is called the Framework for International Access, which actually began its life under the Trump administration. And basically, it's a planning document, but an important one. It says, this is how we're going to go about sharing our vaccines. That bumped its way from desk to desk in the Trump administration. It landed in the National Security Council and specifically on the desk of Matt Pottinger. Everybody thought it was going to see the light of day. And then in the wake of the insurrection at the Capitol, the document languishes. However, it comes back because President Biden, in one of his first executive orders, says, I want that framework on my desk, you know, in short order. And he's also very publicly made a commitment to the rest of the world. So one would think, aha, the framework is going to survive. But no, (laughs) because now the pandemic is To some extent, I mean, despite our rapid progress with vaccinations, is spiraling out of control. I mean, cases are up. Hospitalizations are up. These variants are circulating. And the, you know, behind the scenes, the Biden White House and the COVID task force is saying we have got to drill down on the domestic situation and we cannot deal with the international situation right now. So if that's the case, are we in a standstill right now? Basically, we need to get to the point where everybody in the United States is vaccinated before we can really get that framework in place. Well, that's the big question. You know, it's been the question all along. What is the trigger by which we can start to help the rest of the world? What point do we have to reach? And to some extent, it's a bit of an unknown. And, you know, as one of my sources said, it is sad. Other countries are begging us for help. We catalog their requests. We respond to their requests. But the answer is still no. Catherine, over the weekend, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci mentioned that we might need vaccine boosters next year. 
Is there a case to be made that we should be hoarding some of this vaccine for future use? I can completely understand that argument. I think it's likely that boosters will be needed. But the dilemma, the fundamental dilemma of this pandemic is that we are not safe here at home until everybody in the world is safe. I mean, you know, having the virus circulate in other parts of the world is just going to result in more variants, right? More and more aggressive variants, and those will impact us as well. So we have a self-interest in helping vaccinate the rest of the world. We also domestically have this interesting situation, which certain states seem to have plenty. Other states don't necessarily have enough, in part based on uh, per capita uptake. You know, certain states, more people are getting the vaccine than others. Is there anything in this contract language about what to do basically with surplus within the states or, or is that absent from this? That That is absent from this. I mean, this is just saying this was an issue of legal protection for the vaccine makers. And it's specifically spelled out in these contracts. What, if anything, does this say to you about the prospect of of generic vaccines getting to be made? Particularly, you mentioned earlier that the manufacturers had been the ones who really pushed back against this in the early days. They're the ones who currently have most of the IP on this and, and at least to date, don't seem terribly excited about, you know, throwing the, the recipe out on the Internet and, and letting, you know, other manufacturers make it. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure that our own government is so excited about the idea of throwing the recipe out on the internet and having other people make it because these are not just, you know, very simple cookie cutter vaccines. These vaccines have to work. They have to be effective. They have to be safe. So there is a very real issue about quality control. We've all seen that in the last couple of weeks with the situation at the emergent plant in Baltimore with this snafu that led to basically removing 15 million doses uh, from circulation. That, that's enough to inoculate a small country. Catherine, final question for you. From the outside, what, if anything, should we be watching for as a, as a clue or an indicator that this framework or something like it might be moving forward? Well, frankly, I, I think it is the framework itself. I mean, is this framework going to move? Is it going to get to Biden's desk? That is the signal, the green light within the government that it can start planning to aid the rest of the world. And and it's not a simple thing. You know, it's not just like, yeah, you know, pop some vaccines in the mail. I mean, it's a major logistics enterprise. So I think the, you know, the framework was interesting to me as I was reporting because it was really going to be the signal that we were ready to turn and help others. Catherine Niban, a contributing editor with Vanity Fair, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Boeing, which may again have troubles with its 737 MAX jets. The latest is a potential electrical problem related to a backup power control unit, which was discovered while a plane was being assembled in Seattle, not while the plane was in the air. In response, the four U.S. airlines that just restarted flying the MAX have now pulled 67 of them from their schedules. Why it matters, beyond the obvious safety concerns, is that this is another deep black eye for Boeing, ahead of an April 20th shareholder meeting during which longtime chairman Larry Kellner could be on the chopping block. Kellner's fate and the future management direction of Boeing could rest on how quickly this new 737 MAX issue is resolved. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. 
Have a great National Licorice Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.